This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. As Christians, we have the promise of heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. As Ephesians 1 says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. But what do we really know about heaven and how can we prepare to go there? In fact, are we prepared to go there? That's what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, is heard daily on his radio program, Pathway to Victory, as well as on his weekly television program. And today we'll be talking about his latest book, which is called A Place Called Heaven, 10 Surprising Truths About Your Eternal Home. Dr. Jeffers, great to welcome you back. How are you? Fine. Thanks for having me, Janet. Great to have you here. All right. You've asked this question, what difference does a future heaven make in my life today? So I'm going to throw that to you just as an opening salvo. What kind of difference would you say that heaven makes for you as a pastor? Well, I think it gives you a perspective on this life to realize how long eternity is and how brief this time on life, on earth is. And I think the paradox about this life and eternity is this, that even though our years are very, very few here on earth, what we do in these few years God has granted us on this earth affect our eternal destiny forever. As I say in the book, what we do on earth reverberates in the halls of heaven forever. And so I think there's something about being heavenly minded that actually makes us more effective for God on this earth. You know, C.S. Lewis said, if you look at history, you'll find that the people who did most for this world are those who thought most about the next world. That's true. That's great. And, you know, we recently passed the anniversary of 9-11, Dr. Jeffress, as you know, and Mm -hmm. I think of those people as I mourn for those people, even though I didn't know them. It's just so striking, and I think one of the reasons people grieve as much as we do is not just because of the nature of the attack, but because of the sudden shock of it. Here were these people walking into the World Trade Center, walking into the Pentagon that day. They had every intention, people getting on airplanes, trying to go on a business trip. They had no idea that their lives would soon end. And I wonder how much we really spend time thinking about that, that we are not guaranteed 85 years on Earth or more. No, and you know, it's like somebody said, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one yes. dies. Right. And the fact is, every second that passes moves us toward that inevitable conclusion of life here on Earth. And it just makes sense that we would want to be prepared for the next life, the one that lasts for eternity. You know, Janet, a lot of people have a hard time, and I know I do, getting my mind around eternity. One illustration I use in the book is this. Imagine there's a bird that comes every million years to sharpen its beak on Mount Everest. Once every million years, by the time that bird has finally uh, uh, demolished Mount Everest, eternity will have only begun. Oh, wow. Uh, we can't conceive of that, but that is what forever and ever is all about. Uh, it's just it's staggering. It's like little kids saying, Mom, I can't even understand eternity. And I said, it doesn't get any easier when you get older. You're still just <laughs> as boggled by the whole concept. So let's go over a little bit what 
the Bible says about heaven. There are many different religions that talk about places like Valhalla or paradise or what have you, but what is the truth about heaven as the Bible describes it? Well, in my book, A Place Called Heaven, I'm answering the 10 most frequently asked questions about heaven. You know, one question that I talk about at the outset of the book is, is heaven a real place or is it a state of mind? And in John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Well, he uses that word place, topos in Greek, three times in two verses in John 14. And the word topos literally means a geographic location. Heaven's just not a figment of our imagination. It's not a state of mind. It is an actual location that we're going to inhabit for all eternity if we know Jesus Christ. You know, the other thing people want to know about heaven is, what are we going to do in heaven? Mm-hmm. And I spent a whole chapter answering that. I think, Janet, one reason Christians aren't more excited about heaven is they harbor this secret fear that they're going to be bored for all eternity. Mm-hmm. Or they think church, heaven is going to be one long, unending church service, which sounds more like hell to a lot of people than <laughs> right. heaven. Right. Uh, we are going to worship in heaven. We're going to worship like we never have here on earth, but we're going to do more than worship. We're going to work in heaven. God's going to have a assignments for us without the usual impediments to enjoying our work, like tired bodies or strained relationships or government regulations. All of those things will be removed, and we'll enjoy work like God originally intended for us to enjoy it. Yes, it's it's almost impossible to imagine what it will be like because we are so looking forward to something that God, I mean, you point this out in your book, God really has only given us a glimpse, hasn't he? He hasn't described in extreme detail everything we're going to be seeing, doing, saying, and and, and involved in when we're in heaven. And it, what is God's purpose in keeping that hidden from us, do you think? Well, just imagine you set before a child uh, his dinner. It's a plate filled with roast beef, mashed potatoes, and spinach. And over to the side, you put a bowl of ice cream with chocolate syrup on it. Uh, what What is the child going to do? What is any adult going to do? They're going for the ice cream first. And uh, I think it's the same way with information about heaven. I think, Janet, if we knew everything that God had prepared for us, either we couldn't do the work he assigned for us here on earth, or there'd be mass suicides as people tried to get to the other side as quickly as possible. So he hasn't told us everything, but he's told us just enough to whet our appetite. And I think people are going to be surprised in my book, A Place Called Heaven, actually how much information there is in the Bible about this very real place. Yes. Now, one of the things that you mentioned when you're talking about the benefits of being heavenly minded is that thinking of heaven prepares us for the certainty of judgment. A lot of Christians understand I am saved because of what Jesus Christ did to me. It's not my works. I'm not in trouble anymore because Christ has paid for my sin and justified me before God, giving me his righteousness. I'm okay. But what about the prospect of judgment for everyone in the world? How is that going to work? One of the great myths that Christians uh, embrace is the idea, well, now that I'm a Christian, I never have to experience God's judgment. Wrong. Uh, We will face God's judgment. It's a different judgment than unbelievers face. They face the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20. It's a result of a judgment that ends in condemnation, being thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. But we Christians are also going to experience a judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Janet, this is not a judgment of condemnation, but it is a judgment of evaluation. Paul says we're going to appear before this judgment seat of Christ that each one of us, talking about Christians, may be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether it be good or worthless. 
as I talk about in my book, uh, heaven will not be the same for everybody. There are rewards in heaven, and uh, those rewards will be based be based on our faithfulness to Christ in this life. And you've kind of alluded to this. As evangelicals, sometimes we talk about how good works are of no value. Well, good works are no value in securing our place in heaven, but good works after we are saved have a great deal to do with securing our rank in heaven, the kind of heaven we will experience. Yes, and yet I've heard Christians make the remark, but if I start doing things simply to earn a crown, doesn't that cancel out the good work that I'm trying to do because I'm being proud about it? And then you get into this weird cycle of I'm doing something, but I'm doing it with the wrong motivation, and the Lord is going to be more mad at me for trying to do something good for him because I'm trying to take credit. How would you ease the conscience of somebody who is truly trying to obey Christ? Hey, I would say obeying Christ for a reward is probably the highest motivation there is. I mean, Hebrews 11 talks about that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he says, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently follow him. And he talks about Abraham, who obeyed God because he was looking for that distant, that future city. Moses, who was willing to endure the ill treatment with God's people uh, because he wanted the treasure of Christ. He was looking for a reward, the Bible says. That's the essence of really faith when you think about it. Thinking about my obedience to God in this life, I believe what God says is going to result in a reward in the next life. Yes. Well, there's so much to talk about in that regard, and especially when you're talking talking about those who have a very mixed up view of who goes to heaven, who doesn't go to heaven. The other thing I want to get into, and we'll do this when we come back from the break, Dr. Jeffers, is we have had a slew of books in the last decade on, I know you know what I'm about to say, on heaven tourism, this idea that you, you know, had some little kid or you had some woman or man who just happened to take a little trip to heaven and came back and wrote a book about it, except for those who recanted those testimonies. We're going to get Dr. Jeffers' take on that when we come back. His book, A Place Called Heaven, we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mefford. 
Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here and glad to be chatting with Dr. Robert Jeffress from First Baptist Dallas. He is out with a new book, A Place Called Heaven, 10 Surprising Truths About Your Eternal Home. So I go back to this story, Dr. Jeffress, from a few years ago from NPR, nearly five years after it hit the bestseller list, a book that purported to be a six-year-old boy's story of visiting angels in heaven after being injured in a bad car crash is being pulled from the shelves because the young man at the center of the boy who came back from heaven, Alex Malarkey, said this week that the story was all made up. What do you make of these sorts of tales, Dr. Jefferson? We've seen this kind of boom as a genre in Christian bookstores. By the way, isn't that a great last name, Malarkey? Yes. <laughs> That's what it turned yes. out to be. And his mother's wonderful. I became friends with her. She was very concerned about the book not being true, and she's a fine Christian woman. I was glad to see this happen. And, and you know, I quote his confession in which he said the lesson he's learned and everybody should learn from this is the Bible is sufficient mm-hmm. to tell us everything we need to know about heaven. And look, you know, one of the questions I answer in my book, A Place Called Heaven, is have some people already visited heaven? Of course, what we're talking about are these so-called near-death experiences where somebody supposedly dies, they take a tour of heaven and come back and write a best-selling book about it. I want to be real clear. God can do whatever he wants to do. But if these experiences that people write about actually coincides with what Scripture teaches about heaven, then these books are redundant. You know, save your 1995, because it's already in the Bible. <laughs> right. If these books contradict what is in the Scripture, they are either delusional or demonic in their origin. Yeah. And so we want to stay away from that as well. Uh, the fact is, Janet, there are no near-death experiences like we have today, none of those are recorded in the Bible. I know our listeners are shouting right now, oh, but pastor, what about, (laughs) well, take the case of Lazarus. God raised, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There are all kinds of occasions in the Bible where God raised people from the dead. The key is when they came back to life, they didn't report what they had seen on the other side. Exactly. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 was caught up into the third heaven, but God told him not to speak about those things that he saw. So I think we need to view these uh, experiences with a healthy degree of skepticism and understand the Bible really is sufficient to tell us what we need to know. I love that you say that. And you know, my listeners, I'm sure, are applauding you for saying it, because it's not necessarily very popular to go up against a, a brand of tourism fiction that people really enjoy because they like the story of it. But isn't this sort of a problem within evangelicalism altogether? And we like sentiment sometimes more than we like what the Bible actually says. 
That's right. And honestly, we think we need the assurance that all of this is real. But we don't get our assurance from experience. We get it from the unchanging truth of God's Word. And, uh, you know, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, he was talking to a group of Christians concerned about their loved ones who had died. Had they missed the second coming of Christ? And Paul gives this detailed explanation about the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And he said, therefore comfort one another with these words. I've seen, uh, Janet, I've been a pastor for more than 40 years. I have seen, as I've looked into the face of those who have lost loved ones, and I've read John 14 or 1 Thessalonians 4, how the Word of God has the power to comfort people like no other work does. Absolutely. Now, when you are going through and talking about these 10 surprising truths about our eternal home, one of the things you also address is the question of, after I die as a Christian, do I immediately go to heaven? We think of what Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What is the promise that Scripture gives us about how quickly we go to be with the Lord? I think people are going to be surprised by this in my book, A Place Called Heaven. Look, 2 Corinthians 5.8, the passage you referenced, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, when a Christian dies, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. The moment we shut our eyes here on earth, we awaken in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. We go immediately to be with the Lord. We're awake. We're conscious. We know what is happening. But the question is, where is the Lord right now? Well, he's in the third heaven. And while we go to be with the Lord immediately, that's not our final destination. That's our intermediate destination, not purgatory. It is a place we're awake, experiencing the bliss of heaven. But our ultimate destination, Janet, is going to be right here on this earth, newly recreated, the new heaven and the new earth. You know, right now, Jesus is in heaven, John fourteen seven, preparing a place for us. Mm. That place is the new Jerusalem. I call it the ultimate and prefab housing, <laughs> because when it's completed one day, John says in Revelation 21, he saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven down to earth. We're going to be right here on this earth that we were originally designed for, the earth without sin, just as Adam experienced it before the fall. Now, that's interesting. You jog my memory because there was a survey that came out not too long ago. I was sharing this just recently that said something like a quarter of modern day American Protestants, which would also encompass the mainline and evangelicals, believe in purgatory. And I thought, how is that even possible? I don't even know of the any mainline church that would teach that. Why do you think there is even a temptation for those with such a rich heritage of sola scriptura would believe in purgatory when it's not in the Bible? Well, I think that there's certainly the hope that maybe uh, there's a second chance, that maybe if people are in this waiting station, uh, they can get out of it by something somebody else does uh, here on earth. And of course, we know that was just uh, a, a, a fictional idea created by the church to extort money from people yeah. and uh, uh, get them to be more adherents to the church, and it's just absolutely, completely uh, contrary to Scripture. Luke 16, Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus who died. The rich man immediately was in Hades, being in torment. Uh, Lazarus was immediately in paradise, Abraham's bosom with the Lord. There was no in-between. They were in one place or the other. Jesus said, we either go to everlasting righteousness or everlasting punishment. No in-between. Right. Will we know one another in heaven, Dr. Jeffers? That's a question that comes up quite a bit. 
it comes up, and I think behind it is also the question, will our relationships continue in heaven? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. You know, one of the great myths, Janet, people have about heaven is that when we die, we become somebody else in heaven. Hmm. No, it is we who go to heaven. We retain our names, for example. Moses and Elijah, after being dead hundreds of years, came back to be with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were still named Moses and Elijah. And even in our new resurrection body, we retain some of the characteristics of our old body that make us knowable, recognizable to other people. Think about Jesus in his resurrection body, which was a prototype of our new bodies. His disciples knew him, not immediately all the time. So they weren't expecting to see him necessarily, but they did recognize him. I think we'll know one another in heaven. I think we'll enjoy our relationships with Christians that began here. I think we'll enjoy them more, because there'll be no taint of sin in those relationships. I think we'll know our mates in heaven. We're not going to have the same kind of marital relationship we have here on earth, Jesus said. That doesn't mean we won't fellowship with them, and maybe enjoy them in a whole new way, as together we can look back on our life on earth and see how God used the good the bad, the horrible, to bring us to the present place. Very good. Well, the starkest reality of all, as we both know, is that not everybody goes to heaven. Jesus talked about the narrow way versus the broad path of destruction. And I go to this passage where Jesus says, you know, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are those, Dr. Jeffers, who will read that passage and say, Jesus is preaching a gospel of works. I have to be better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What is the truth about how you get to heaven and what Jesus was really talking about there? Well, Paul said in Galatians, Cursed is every man, quoting the Old Testament, who does not obey all things in the law. God doesn't grade on the curve. He he demands 100% perfection. And by that standard, we all fall short. You know, I use this illustration in the final chapter of A Place Called Heaven. Just imagine that you're moving to a foreign country. That's what we're all doing when we go to this place called heaven. But if you gain entry into a foreign country, the only way you do so is by having the proper passport. You cannot get into a foreign country without the right passport. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, will Catholics be in heaven? Will Jews be in heaven? Will Baptists be in heaven? Nobody goes into heaven in a group. We go one by one based on our relationship with God. The only people who are going to be allowed into heaven are forgiven people. Mm. And that's why for your spiritual passport, you're going to have to have the stamp that says forgiven by Jesus Christ. He is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right, the Lamb of God. He also, I think when you're talking about that, I was thinking of Jesus saying that I am the door. And I love that image, that he is the one we must have to walk into heaven. Without Christ, we can't get there. And, you know, this really drives home for me the point, Dr. Jeffress, that God so loved us. He so loved the world that he gave us his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. The gospel itself is such a miracle in so many ways that we don't earn heaven. We could never earn heaven, but God did it for us. It's just astounding. And, and that he did provide a way of escape. You know, if a fireman awakened you in the middle of the night and said, your house is on fire, follow me, there's only one way out, you wouldn't accuse him of being hateful for saying there's only one way out. Right. You would thank him, and you would follow him. Yeah. Jesus said there's only one way out of this burning 
planet, and it's through trusting in him for salvation. Well, it is. And when we consider what is coming, when we go to heaven, we may go tomorrow, we may go in 50 years. Who knows how long the Lord has willed for us to live. What would you say to Christians right now about preparing for heaven? I would say make sure you've got the right passport that you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, but also eliminate regrets that you have here on earth. You know, Abraham died, Genesis 25 says, an old man satisfied with life. As a pastor, there's nothing sadder I've seen than Christians approaching the end of their life, regretting relationships they wish they had reconciled, goals they wish they'd achieved. Uh, don't do that. Go ahead and, and, and take care of those regrets now, and then make sure you're living for that final evaluation by God at the judgment seat of Christ. As I said at the top of the broadcast, what we do on earth reverberates in the halls of heaven forever. And that's why we need to start preparing for that trip to that place called heaven. I love it. Now. A place called heaven, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeffress. Thanks for having me, Janet. Absolutely. God bless. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, if you ever doubted that our God is the great missionary, all you need to do is read what he asked Jonah when he called him to preach to Nineveh. The Lord asks in Jonah 4.11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Uh, Now, of course, we know how Jonah responded to God's missionary directive. His first response was to run from his calling. But why did he do that? And what can the book of Jonah teach us about our own wayward hearts? We're going to talk about that today with Dr. Dave Beckwith, a former lead pastor at Woodbridge Church in Irvine, California, and now U.S. Western Regional Director for Standing Stone Ministry, which cares for spiritual leaders. Today, we'll be discussing his book. I love this title. I love the world. It's people I can't stand. Jonah's journey of brokenness and yours. Dave, great to have you with us. How are you doing? Hi, good good afternoon. So, yes, uh, good to be with you. Always get a laugh whenever uh, the title is announced. I love the world. It's people I can't stand. Yeah. That, I, think, I think we all have a name or two we want to fill in there. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It kind of it kind of encompasses the book of Jonah. It really sum, summarizes it, doesn't it? Because Jonah, yeah. I'm sure in theory, wanted the Lord to save wicked people. He just didn't want to go to Nineveh. And you, you talk about that a little bit. What was it about Nineveh that bothered Jonah so much? Well, I I think there's two things. One, um, uh, he was he had a deep-seated uh, prejudice against the Ninevites, and it makes me wonder whether he had had something happen. Maybe a family member had been killed or something by Ninevites. I don't know. It was very deep-seated. Uh, but the other thing was the paranoia, um, a paranoia, a irrational fear that he had. Uh, though there was some rationality to it, because the, the Ninevites um, were the terrorists of the day. Uh, today's terrorists have absolutely nothing over on the Ninevites, hmm. and 
Ninevites would uh, skin people alive. They would take eyes and uh, out. They would uh, <clears throat> hang their hides on walls. And I can imagine Jonah thinking, and you want me to go preach to mm-hmm. those terrorists? Right. You know? So th- there, was, uh, there was some basis behind that. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. If you're called to go to the city where they skin people alive, you might not want to go immediately. But, you know, you say something interesting and I think very true about Jonah, because when you contrast him with the other Old Testament prophets, his suffering was the only suffering among the prophets that was self-inflicted. How would you? I love it's true, though. It's true. How would you characterize Jonah as being different from the other prophets that we read about in the Old Testament? Yeah, Jonah was so was so so different in so many ways. One, he was called to go to a to a foreign land and a foreign people, which the other prophets weren't. And uh, you know, and then his, his suffering was self inflicted. And uh, the, the amazing thing is, Jonah had more visible results than any of than all the other prophets combined. Yeah, I mean. This a tremendous awakening, and he deserved it the least, you know, mm-hmm. if you're talking about deserving it because of obedience. So he's, he's an enigma in so many ways, but uh, his uh, story of brokenness, uh, of what God had to take him through, and I don't know whether ever, uh, God ever got completely finished with him, but... Uh, Anyway, it's a fascinating story. Well, it is. When you talk about his fear, you you mentioned a minute ago that not only was his fear irrational, but there was some rationality to it when you look at how morally evil the people of Nineveh were. Can you talk a little bit about the fear, though, and how you really think Jonah can be somebody to look at and consider some of our own fears and how we can deal with our own fears in a similar way? Yes. Dealing with our, our fears, um, uh, <clears throat> and certainly Jonah had his uh, fears that, that were predominant, but we have our own level of fears, and fears can drive us to do a lot of, a lot of different things. Uh, fears uh, can set up camp uh, in our life and uh, uh, just run havoc. And so uh, we have to be able to deal with the fears. I say identify the fear. Um, secondly, don't fear people. Okay. Uh, and thirdly, face the future with, with faith instead of fear. So rather than allowing the fear to take control in our life. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. Regardless of your circumstance, you have to employ all of those things. And the stubbornness angle, this is something I know you break down Jonah, the book of Jonah, according to the chapters. But you mentioned in chapter one, we see this real stubbornness from Jonah. He flees, he gets on the ship, and then all these miracles take place. And I hadn't really thought about it until I was reading your book. And you're mentioning that in the book of Jonah, you actually see 12 miracles and I, I thought that was very interesting because I hadn't really counted them up before. But can you right. speak to can you speak to that a little bit? That you know the intervention of the Lord in his life, despite his stubbornness, is quite astonishing. Uh, it's an amazing story of God's grace uh, for a stubborn for a stubborn prophet, and that God would go to the end to do all these uh, miracles, and uh, it uh, shows God's grace and God's love for him. Certainly, God could have signed up a different prophet that would have been willing to do what God commanded to do, 
but uh, God carried out all these miracles to be able to perform what he wanted done through Jonah and to Jonah in the process. Yeah. So when you see the calming of the sea, you know, it begins with the great wind, the storm on the sea, the casting of lots, and then the storm is calmed. And then the conversion of the sailors. This is one that's almost, I think, glossed over a little bit when you look at the men on the ship who said, oh, 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 you know, and, and they end up recognizing this God is great, Jonah. This God is great. And he ends up being pitched into the sea. But what do you make of that angle that the Lord intervened? to bring people to himself in spite of Jonah's stubbornness, not just the people in Nineveh, but those sailors on the ship. I know. It's amazing. And uh, furthermore, it's so amazing that these these uh, rough uh, sailors, that they probably were, had more concern for Jonah than Jonah did for the people of the whole city in Nineveh. Good point. So, But God in his grace showed it there for these sailors and revealed himself even through a, a stubborn, stubborn prophet. Oh, sure. And then, of course, the famous part of the book of Jonah is where he's swallowed by the big fish. He's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, prefiguring Jesus Christ. This is really yeah. critical. And, and I'm wondering how much of that prefiguring of Christ is necessary to the story is unfolding as it does, that this is God's grace is the overarching theme, obviously, in the gospel as well. But how do you link together how God dealt with Jonah in the belly of the of the fish uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful link that is there. First of all, uh, there are some who want to treat the book of Jonah and all the miracles that happened there as an allegory right. and just a made-up made story that didn't happen. But we got a real problem doing with that because Jesus cites the book of Jonah both as historical and factual. And he does several times, and he compares it to his death and resurrection. So if we take out the, um, the connection there that Jesus uh, authenticates Jonah and the book, uh, if we remove that, then suddenly we've got a problem with Jesus' teaching, and ultimately with his death and resurrection, because it is a picture that Jesus uses of his death and his resurrection. Right. And you can, you can put with that, as we die with Christ and are resurrected with him, so our story is one of going through personal brokenness hmm. and experiencing the new resurrection life that Jesus has for us. Well, and that's that's such an important thing. And I know this is part and parcel of what you're writing about in your book is the fact that w- there is never a time when we can read scripture where we can't understand something a little bit better about ourselves as God's yeah. creation and understanding right. that our sin, yeah, our own sin and, and looking at the life of Jonah and looking at the life of some of the other people mentioned in the book of Jonah just gives us that greater insight, as you mentioned, into our own brokenness. I want to talk about that some more when we return from this break. Dr. Dave Beckwith is my guest. I love the world. It's people I can't stand. We'll come back talking about the book right after this. You're listening to Janet Mefford today.
When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. This is Janet Mefford today. And now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Dr. Dave Beckwith is my guest, former lead pastor at Woodbridge Church in Irvine, California, and now U.S. Western Regional Director for Standing Stone Ministry and author of the book, I Love the World, It's People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours. Dave, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which I think is kind of funny, but also true, is that Jonah really finds rehab of sorts while he's in the belly of the fish. Can you talk about that a little bit? I call that chapter checking into rehab. Yeah, <laughs> you know uh, that's what it is. And and the honest truth is, we all need rehab. And uh, it may not be in an, in an institution or facility. Uh, it may not be for alcoholism, but we all need rehab in some area. And God leads us through a Jonah-like experience to deal with that area of stubbornness in our life. I call this Jonah's journey of brokenness and yours, but let me add, and mine. Uh, So I weave a lot of my own personal story in there of how God has dealt with me through the years uh, to deal with my stubbornness and um, lead me through brokenness to be a more loving person. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? What would be some of your recollections of your own stubbornness and what the Lord did in your life through that? Well, I grew up in a um, very angry, very dysfunctional home. Uh, I left home with a lot of that um, uh, within me. And so when I got married, um, Joanne is a psychiatric nurse, so she married a great little fixer-upper <laughs> and uh, uh, realized I had to deal with my own depression and anger. 
so God has uh, faithfully worked with me. When I first went into the ministry, I, you know, I wanted to, to, to deal with the successful people, not the people with problems. Hmm. And uh, God really had to deal with me. So much of my ministry now is for those that ache and hurt and deal with depression. And God has totally reversed my ministry. But he's had to lead me on a journey uh, of that. One of, one of the experiences along the way, um, I had stubbornly told God I didn't want to be a lead pastor or a senior pastor again. Hmm. The experience had been, I'd gone through a very difficult one. It had been painful. Uh, and so I was, I was trying to call the shots, and, and God had other plans. So I was in camp ministry for three years, which is a good refreshing break, but I went up to speak at a camp in Northern California and um, arrived. I spoke the first night uh, for the camp, and then I went out that evening to go for a walk and uh, just enjoy the cool of the evening. It was in the hot of the summer. So um, I uh, flipped my flashlight off, I was looking up at the stars and uh, just enjoying it. I took a few steps, and the next thing you know, I was airborne, going <clears throat> crashing into a, uh, a cavern that was 40 feet below creek <laughs> bed. And so uh, a 40-foot fall, uh, I came in on my on my backside and I felt the shock waves go up through my back. I knew my, I had broken my back. I broke my left shoulder in the fall as well. Mm. And here I am in a dark canyon and I am far enough away from the camp that even with my preacher's voice, I couldn't be heard. Uh, this is really, cell phones were not in common use uh, at that time. Uh, so I'm totally deserted. Furthermore, I'm the speaker for the camp, so I'm in a cabin all by myself. So oh. nobody will even know that I'm gone. Hmm. And so I, there's a whole lot of praying uh, going on and confessing my stubbornness that I had. Um, and I would try to get back up on my, get on my feet with a broken back, and I'd fall back to the ground, and I kept kept trying and praying and finally was able to get up, uh, hunched completely over. And somehow I was able to start down that, that canyon, uh, just hobbling. And I went for about three hours. Ooh. The only hunch that I had was that perhaps the cliff would come down and my hunch was correct. Uh, after about three hours of hobbling down there, I came to where the cliff was about the height of a, of a table, uh, a desk. And so with excruciating pain, I rolled up onto the, uh, the embankment, uh, then went through the process of getting back up again, and then turned around to head back towards the camp. I look back, and it's just amazing that I was even able to do that with my back broken in three different places. Oh, man. Um, wow. So um, I came to a barbed wire fence. Of course, I couldn't split the wires to get through. I had to lay on the ground and inch myself underneath that barbed wire fence. And uh, so finally got into the camp about, I don't know, one thirty, two 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, 
a couple saw me and took me into the hospital, and then I had six weeks laying flat of rehab. So That's incredible. the church that had been contacting me, wanting me to be their lead pastor, came back again. It's kind of like that second call of Jonah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the word of the Lord came a second time today and said, I want you to go, and I want you to lead this church. Huh. And uh, this time I thought, you know, that might be a good idea, Lord. I, th- <laughs> I think we're going to go your way. <laughs> I think we're going to go your way this time. Wow. So that was a very life-changing uh, circumstance, and then I, I spent the next, um, oh, what, 25, 25, almost 30 years as the lead, lead pastor, senior pastor, but boy, that was God's will for my life, that, calling. That is quite a tale. Oh, boy, that, that's incredible to look back on that, I'm sure, now and say, wow, that, that, that amazing that you were able to do what you did, three hours and a broken back. Oh, I can't even imagine what that was yeah. like. But I mean, did, when you talk about what Jonah learned in rehab, so to speak, that God was shouting, I love you to him in not so many words, but he was also learning to surrender his will to the Lord. Is that what you would describe as the after effects of your experience that you learned those two things in a different way? Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, I realized how much God was shouting even in the loneliness of that canyon, (laughs) I really love you. I've preserved your life. Um, Most people who think felt like that would either be dead or would be a a quadriplegic. True, uh, that's true. So uh, definitely God was, was doing that, but it was also dealing with my will. And so... That was a very important part of the process. Dave, would you say that that experience changed you from that point on in terms of surrendering to the will of God? Yes, I would, I would say that was a watershed movement. I would say that a watershed moment, I'm sorry. Um, I would say that I wouldn't say that there's not been times of resistance since because God continues to deal with me. But that definitely that was a life changing moment. That's incredible. How have you been able to communicate that when you're working with other people who have struggled in some similar ways and really can identify with the book of Jonah? How do you translate what Jonah is teaching, what the Word of God is teaching, and what you've experienced and and make that life-giving and and give that to somebody else to help them in their walk with the Lord where they might be going through some of the same things? Well, so much of my work right now is coming alongside pastors and my wife does so with uh, with the spouses and walking them through their own uh it may be the stubbornness it may be things that they're going through it may be crisis in the church um just so many issues um and now to be able to come alongside and minister to people going through those things i see how god has prepared me for that Right. Well, and that's that's really important. And I think when you look at the end of the book of Jonah, where the Lord is, you know, looking at how Jonah responded and got angry, and then the, the makes the plant grow up over him, and the worm comes, and all the rest. Right. I mean, this really there are parallels, aren't there, in our lack of concern for our neighbors who don't yet know yeah. the Lord. I think there's so much to learn there. Yeah. 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 I spent quite a little time uh, dealing with the subject of anger and. Uh, it's close companion called depression. Yes. And uh, Jonah, Jonah stayed there, but I go into four different types of anger, how they're uniquely uh, different and how you deal with them in uh, different ways. 
and also deal with the subject of depression. Very important. Part of my part of facing my own depression, which was very severe, was coming to terms with uh, how to be able to deal with it. Well, and yeah. how much God loved me even when I was going through a time of depression. Really important, and people can read about it in the book. It's called I Love the World, It's People I Can't Stand, Jonah's Journey of Brokenness and Yours by Dr. Dave Beckwith, who's been kind enough to join us. Dave, it was great to have you here. Thank you so much for your book, and thanks for being with us today. Great talking with you, Janet. God bless. Oh, God bless you, too. Thanks a lot, Dave. And thanks for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time. 